1: That right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, 50, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Samuel Romani author of Putin's War on Ukraine, published in April by Hearst. Even as he had close to 200,000 troops massed on the Ukrainian border in February 22, many geopolitical analysts were shocked when Vladimir Putin ordered them to invade. It didn't seem logical. As a war that was meant to be over in days or weeks has dragged on for a year, and Russia's military humiliated, the same experts seek an answer to the same question. Why on earth did he do it? Two of the favourite explanations are that Russia has long felt threatened by NATO's eastern expansion and that an ageing and ailing Putin himself felt his regime was under threat internally. Samuel Romani disagrees. The primary motivation for Putin's invasion of Ukraine was to overturn the 2014 Euromaidan revolution and its outcomes, he writes. Putin's counter-revolutionary agenda stemmed from his desire to reassert Russia's hegemony over Ukraine and promote his brand of illiberalism within the post-Soviet space. A tutor in politics and international relations at Oxford, an associate fellow at Rusi, Samuel Romani works at the intersection between Russian domestic politics, national identity, and foreign policy making. A frequent contributor to foreign policy, The Washington Post, Newsweek, the BBC, and CNN, Dr. Romani also boasts an extraordinary Twitter following for a geopolitical analyst, coming in at more than 200000 Sam, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Tim. Great to be here.
1: Well, you open the book by pushing back against the insecurity arguments for the invasion, and you make a claim for a proactively counter-revolutionary motivation for Putin. Is this why you decided to write the book? Was it was it out of frustration at the, at this narrative?
0: Well, I mean, the decision to write this book was actually quite sudden. I was working on a book about the Af- Afghanistan, the Islamic Emirate's foreign policy in the first year under the Taliban. I had just finished a book about Russia and Africa. And then the war broke up, and I was contacted by my editor at Hearst, uh, Michael Dwyer, to uh, consider writing a book about this, because I had done my doctoral thesis on uh, Vladimir Putin's war in uh, Crimea and Donbass, as well as the war in Syria. Now, my doctoral thesis had focused precisely on how Russia was trying to f- create a counter-revolutionary identity to unite the people around Putin's regime in the long term. And uh, this war, which was aimed at overturning Euromaidan. Was a natural extension of the first war that was aimed at undermining my dam in 2014, and uh, Syria, which is aimed, of course, at stymieing the Arab Spring. So uh, a mixture of serendipity and uh, a bit of an interesting, spontaneous discussion with my editor got me to start uh, writing and working on this book. And um, obviously, when I wrote about it, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that the sources of Russian conduct come from within. There's this internal, it's domestic politics, And also Putin is looking a lot more about the long-term legitimacy and long-term sustainability of the system that he has created. It's not just about him being afraid of NATO or being afraid of being imminently overthrown. And I want to kind of turn some of those conventional narratives on its head by uh, tying my doctoral thesis conclusions to what we're seeing happening right now, and also writing a definitive account of this book that includes Russia's domestic uh, political changes, as well as the foreign policy changes, which often we're getting overlooked. By the battlefield dynamics.
1: And why do you think those two alternative narratives are so pervasive in in, uh, in academia and and, well, and in commentary generally?
0: Well, I think it's because they kind of uh, form a very simple in-the-box argument. And they're, they're a source of arguments that could be applied towards many other countries' conduct. I mean, if China or Iran or many other countries that, that could be aspiring to uh, commit an act of aggression like this, you'd probably be looking at those factors too it's very logical that when a regime is anti-Western, you focus on the Western threat and you make it all about the United States. When a regime is authoritarian, you worry about them being overthrown by their own people. So these arguments are conv- follow from conventional logic, and conventional wisdom of what you'd expect an authoritarian regime to behave like. But also homogenizes countries too much and it makes the situation too simple. It does lacks the character that comes from the uh, Russia-Pacific context. And that's why I think that that's... Uh, uh, a discrepancy that needs to be looked at
1: well i, I may say this my you know uh, as, as a european union analyst but uh, I, I felt that the implication of your argument was that putin perceived the threat from ukraine to be more one of a, a good example a deeply imperfect but improving democracy with a western vocation so in a sense the eu was perceived as more of a threat than nato is am i over-egging that
0: well, I think that's possibly and largely the case because look at NATO expansion and look at Russia's reaction to it over time. I mean, obviously, the Russians were deeply perturbed during the mid-1990s when NATO expanded to the east It went to Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic. but uh, And then there was another inflection point that happened during the 1999 Kosovo War and uh, that, that led to a real spike in uh, Russia's negative opinions uh, towards NATO. But in the early 2000s, we saw a very different tune that was being struck by Putin. We saw the... Uh, for example, the NATO-Russia Council being quite active, we saw Vladimir Putin talk about in 2001, under specific terms, potentially even joining NATO. And uh, in 2002, we saw Vladimir Putin say that you know, Ukraine has a sovereign choice, it has a right to be able to uh, decide on its security alignments. This was at the time when Kuchma was trying to balance between East and West and was contemplating bringing Ukraine closer to NATO membership. And then, of course, there were the NATO expansion in, in the Baltic states in 2004 that really did not merit a very fierce reaction from Russia. The Russians are much more concerned about what was happening with the Rose Revolution in Georgia and the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And uh, it was only really after 2008 when uh, Georgia and Ukraine were uh, invited to, to potentially join NATO that Russia really, really began on a very consistent basis ramping up its threat-mongering towards NATO, particularly with regards to its conduct in Libya and then uh over the course of the next decade as a function of declining Russia-West relations. But it's a misleading argument because Ukraine was nowhere near joining NATO in 2021-2022. It was, in fact, nowhere closer to joining it than it was in 2008. So there was no imminent threat of NATO membership or no imminent threat of NATO expansion. And there's a clear precedent from the first war in Ukraine that invading a country actually draws that country's population towards NATO. In, uh before 2014 maybe 30 percent of ukrainians wanted NATO membership after 2014 the majority did even in donbass we were looking at 35 to 40 percent of the people uh, being able to uh, be interested in joining NATO so yeah he clearly was not responding to a rational threat of NATO expansion and also aggression was absolutely the worst possible way for him to be able to uh, counter the NATO expansion threat so that that was a, that's why I think that the NATO argument is a fallacy. With regards to the European Union, I think absolutely. I think that you it was your European Association Agreement that drove Russia to war with Ukraine to begin with, trying to prevent Ukraine from entering the European sphere and getting out of the Russian sphere, and trying to prevent a representative democracy, however imperfect, however corrupt, however flawed, from being built on its borders. That in the long term would present a governance model that the rest of the post-Soviet space would want to would want to follow more closely than Russia's model. So. It was a fear of these revolutions being uh, occurring, as well as a desire to unite the people around the struggle against uh, liberalism and all of its manifestations. This war on Ukraine is also a war on liberalism.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I I you know the two of us there picked up the, the running themes of the book, but what surprised me reading it was how much of a good old fashioned narrative history it was. And I would certainly recommend it for anyone who wants to read a a really good thorough history of, of of the last few years. Given that your background is not as a historian, was that always your intention, or did it sort of develop as you were writing in that in that direction?
0: So uh, basically, what what I was uh, going to say with regards to the historical dimension. Um, I think that, you know, obviously I want to trace it back, this concept of counterrevolution, because it was a unifying concept of Russian foreign policy that occurred regardless of whether Russia was a communist state, whether it was an authoritarian state, or whether, whether it was attempting to have some kind of uh, elements of uh, democracy or hybrid regime. And uh, we see in uh, the, the consistency of this over and across generations is really quite striking. So obviously in the 19th century, the legacies of orthodoxy, autocracy and nationalism kind of pervade forward. Then we saw the Soviet Union respond to the revolutions in Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, the protests in East Germany in 1953, with strikingly similar terms to what uh, we're seeing today, them being a conduit of Western influence, the protests being artificial. And the protests being infiltrated by fascism and and Nazism. And and fascism and Nazism was not just the case of Germany, which is right after the Second World War, but also in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. You see that in the literature uh, and in the Soviet discourse from that time. And then you see the same kind of fascist and uh, warnings about fascism and warnings about instability and warnings about uh, Western uh, uh, stoking of discontent during the 1993 constitutional crisis in Russia. And then you see it throughout the color revolutions of the early 2000s, the Arab Spring, and then on to the uh, the, the Euromaidan and the uh, current situation in Ukraine. So history is very important to understand when you're looking at this concept of counter-revolution, because Russia has used the exact same rhetoric on popular revolutions and democratic movements on its borders and further afield for about 70 or 80 years. And every generation of Russians has been exposed to this propaganda, regardless of whether Russia was, was moving towards freedom or moving towards greater autocracy. So that's why I think that it's important to look at historical precedents. Yes, I'm not a historian by training, but I try to connect the dots and try to make uh, a narrative in that chapter that dealt with that.
1: yeah well, I mean let, let's go back to the the period immediately before uh, before the inv- full scale invasion, and you put this down to or the stepping up of Russia's aggression towards Ukraine. you put this down to Russia, quote, being emboldened by the apparent weakness of the Ukrainian military and the West's limited resolve. But you very interesting, you also quote um, Alexei Danilov as saying that Ukraine started preparing for war in, in December 2019. Now, is that was that a failure of Russian intelligence to know that? And is it an important explanation for the military's, or the Ukrainian military's, surprising resilience in the first weeks of the war before Western arms started coming in?
0: Well, at least from my uh, interviews with the Ukrainian uh, military and uh, intelligence officials, uh, well, which, some of which I could obviously put in the book because of the sensitivity of the content, I kind of uh, came to the impression that, the, that there was a degree of denialism even inside Ukraine about this, the fact that this would be a full-scale invasion. The specter of Russia going further than Donbass had always loomed over. Because people in 2014 and 2015 had assumed that Novorossiya was going to be the goal, and they would eventually want to go for Odessa and Kharkiv and take over that one third of Ukraine, but they they did not really escalate to the point in which they were moving beyond just using uh, paratroopers and proxies, right? The Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics armies, or the Wagner Group, or other forces. They were not using re- They were using Russian regular armed forces, but they were not admitting to it in 2014 and 2015, and that nature of restraint combined with the expectation of, of, of some degree of consequences that would be very, and the unprecedented nature of a full-scale invasion and the uh, belief that, of course, within Ukraine, that there would be overwhelming resistance to Russia, created a bit of denialism in Kiev as well. That was only in the final days when the panic set in, the emergency measures were made. So the uh, actual initial preparations for the defense of Kiev were kind of scattershot because of this. So... Then can say, yes, Ukraine is preparing for war for three years, but I don't think it was necessarily a concrete preparation for, for an invasion of this kind. It was more about deepening security integration with NATO, procuring defensive weaponry from Western countries like javelins and MLAs, and trying to uh, get some uh, lethal aid and lethal assistance coming their way, first from Lithuania and then from other countries, So, if the, uh, and also getting NATO-class training. So if the invasion did come, They would be able to uh, defend and there would be unity within the military's ranks. They would have the weaponry that they didn't have in 2014. So I don't think that the Ukrainians were necessarily planning three years in advance for this kind of a a war of this scale, but they were dealing with it much more seriously as a contingency over the past few years because of some of the trends that were happening inside Russia and in Russia-Ukraine relations, Russia's hostile relations reaction to Ukraine's uh, have crackdowns of the Russian Orthodox Church and some Russian media outlets, the uh, Cold Kirk Strait Crisis. I was in Ukraine I saw it back in 2018. That was a brinkmanship moment. So there were things that had, and also the general authoritarian character of Russia, the repression of Navalny, the growing uh, anti Westernism that led to the, this conclusion. So I would say that the Russians maybe were did obviously have many intelligence failures. They underestimated the scale of the Ukrainian resistance. They overestimated the extent to which their own military had reformed since Yukov transformed it from a conscript-based army to something much smaller, sleeker, and more professional after the Georgian War. But uh, it's also wrong to say that Ukraine uh, was expecting uh, this to happen because the defense of Kiev clearly shows, and also the loss of Kurzon clearly shows, that they were scrambling to, to deal with the threat but they managed to uh, think quickly and think smartly and get the advantage much faster than anybody assumed or predicted.
1: Yeah, actually, on the on the um, political side of that, I, I had forgotten, and it was interesting to be reminded of this in the book of how Zelensky was perceived on his election compared to Poroshenko. That he, you know he's a Russian speaker, he was seen as more of a somebody who who was prepared to make peace with the Russians. Do do you feel that he? I mean. Do you feel that he was close to ready for what happened at the time? Had, had he essentially been radicalized by uh Russian behavior since since he went uh, sorry, since he came into office?
0: Well, so that's he definitely got a lot of pushback from uh, more nationalist-oriented commentators like Alexander Motil, like I think I was the one I mentioned in the book. Because of his, yeah, Russian-speaking history, and because he was seen as naive, he was a comedian. People didn't think that he was going to be, uh, you know, uh, have the political experience to be really going toe-to-toe with Putin. And Zelensky also made a a promise that he wanted to end the war in Donbass. And by ending the war in Donbass, that was interpreted by many people in Ukraine as giving territorial concessions to Russia, legitimizing Russia's holds on uh, Crimea and, and uh, parts of Donetsk and Luhansk that they had. Maybe not legally through an internationally legally binding mechanism, but through a, a literal interpretation of Minsk, which included elections in those regions that would elect, uh, through uh, undemocratic processes perhaps, uh, pro-Russian uh, officials. So he was seen as somebody who was willing to give territory, give up to Russia in order to keep the peace. He was seen as an appeaser by many people who were supporters of Poroshenko as well as many nationalists inside Ukraine. And he was genuinely believing in dialogue. I mean, he he worked on the the, the Steinmeier formula, for example, throughout 2019. He tried on numerous occasions to uh, uh, to to durably reduce the number of ceasefire violations that we were seeing. But uh, the Russians didn't stick to it. The Russians uh, basically uh, continued to escalate and continue to violate ceasefire in in Donetsk and Luhansk throughout 2021 and 2022. The conflict never really fully froze. So there was a lot of mistrust of the Russian side. And also, there was a lot of concern, I think, from Zelensky internally, because he was politically vulnerable. His approval rating was only 21%. Some, uh, he was facing a lot of criticism also about the slow pace of his anti-corruption reforms in his domestic agenda. He was concerned about fragmentation and divisiveness within Ukrainian society coming from that uh, potential coup being launched against him, whether that coup would be launched by allies of Poroshenko, whether it would be launched by the Russians. There was a coup attempt in November 2021, of course, that preceded the invasion. So that, that fear also encouraged him to crack down on pro-Russian elements within Ukrainian society, like uh, Viktor Medvedchuk and his affiliated uh, media networks like News One, for example. And that uh, created uh, a, a move that, that led him to be praised by some Ukrainian nationalists who criticized him in the past, but also antagonized and angered Russia to react in this uh, horrendous, disproportionate uh, way by invading the country.
1: Did, did any of the threats to him um, before the war come from the nationalist side, or were they all from the, the pro-Russian elements in, in the country?
0: Well, I think the primary threats were coming from the pro-Russian elements yeah. inside the country. I think we're looking at people like Victor Vychuk, obviously, uh, who was sanctioned by uh, Ukraine in twenty twenty one. He had uh, been uh, accused, largely, of, uh, of not only shepherding Russian military involvement in the east and supporting it, but also uh, and promoting uh, integration with Russia, but, but also you know, being uh, just very actively involved in uh, undermining the Euro-Atlantic course that you, uh, Ukraine wanted to, to move forward on. So it was people who were opposed to the Euro-Atlantic course in general who were probably the biggest threats to Zelensky. Um, to, to and some of the people who were suggested as potential successors to Zelensky if the Russians that occupied Kiev were not really politically involved very much. I mean, you have Yevin Murayev, who is a media figure, and a former RADA deputy, he didn't really have any power. Similar with Novorossi's speaker Saryov. who was running wellness clinics. He wasn't really a politically active figure. So the people who were really cal- challenging uh, Zelensky from within were pro-Russian elements from the opposition bloc platform for life and its various affiliates, and also pro-Russian elements within the intelligence services, particularly in areas like Kherson, who defected and that uh, sped up the uh, Russian uh, occupation of that region. So it was more the, 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 those groups that were problematic, not necessarily the Russian elements that uh, were, were rumored to be uh, Putin's uh, proxy successors in Kiev. From the nationalist side, obviously there were some criticisms and some fierce resistance from Poroshenko and his allies to the Steinmeier formula and to the, the movements that Yushchenko was trying to do towards the literal interpretation of Minsk. Uh, which ultimately pulled back and failed because of Russian noncompliance and Ukraine's reticence about the elections. But I think in the months leading up to the invasion, because of what had happened from May of 2021 and the media censorship onward, he was from the pro-Russian side where the threats were the strongest.
1: Yeah, on the Russian side, um, on the question of, you know, this catastrophic miscalculation, um, I get the impression from the book that two of the determinative drivers there were the the success of the Syria campaign, um, which convinced Putin and, and his generals that the, that the military was a lot slicker than than it actually was. And the second was the ease of the success of the Kazakhstan intervention. It, is that right?
0: Well, I think that the Syria campaign certainly uh, played an important role in all of this because it showed that Russia could use air power in a decisive way and combine air power with the uh, the use of local surrogates, whether it be Hezbollah, whether it be the Syrian army, whether it be the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Forces, and really transform a conflict from where Assad was uh, potentially losing the war to where he was potentially winning. And uh, there was a lot of prestige and a feedback loop that got created from it. Uh, I mean, uh, even inside the Arab world, you started seeing uh, opinion surveys that showed that this was the most decisive intervention by a foreign power since the U.S. in the 1991 Gulf War, and that of course entered the Russian media, and that entered the Russian information sphere. So there's always this feedback loop that kind of comes forward from anything that's good, good that's maybe said about Russia somewhere, and it ends up coming back back home, and it feeds overconfidence. So yeah. the Russians were overconfident, obviously, by the success of their ability to use uh, air power in Syria, and they obviously were befuddled by the strength of Ukrainian air defenses. And it was a mystery to some military analysts at first, until we really saw the uh, the potential risks of of large uh, depletions of their fleet. Why they weren't using VKS uh, fixed wing jets in the early stages of the war? Why weren't they softening up the Ukrainian air defenses through extensive aerial bombardments, like the U.S. did in Iraq, and then going in? So that was kind of a, a bit of a surprise. So I think we overestimated in the West and in Russia the strength and the uh, uh, the applicability of Russian air power. And with regards to the intervention in Kazakhstan, that was very similar. It was a police mission. It was a short-term stabilization of protests. And uh, that was a mission that probably the Russian military and the Russian National Guards are probably more suited for than a long-term offensive uh, war aimed at occupying countries. Because historically, every time when Russia has launched a war of this kind, it's become extremely attritional in character. And uh, this war has been no exception, regardless of the professionalization and the uh, new combat techniques that Sardyukov introduced.
1: Well, so the, the the invasion was at the end of February, and already by May, June, the, the Russians had scaled back their war aims. Uh, and you quote a British official, British defense official, saying that already then they had strategically lost the war. Um, is that something you agree with? And could you take us through your... Your, your narrative and your, uh, your analysis of Russia's early military failings in, in the war.
0: Sure. So, obviously, the Russians advanced uh, on Ukraine through several axes of advance, right? They were expected to uh, move through, at least according to U.S. intelligence officials, from Donbass, and, uh, and then moving uh, in from Crimea further to take over the east. People were obviously keeping a close eye on the extension of those military drills that occurred with Belarus until February 20th, beyond February 20th, as a pretext and a gateway for an invasion from the north that would cut into Kiev. There was an expectation also that the Russians were going to open a front in the south. They were going to come from Transnistria and then go northward. But that front never really transpired, even though there was one American assessment that said that that was actually the most likely. And that was partially because I think the Russians decided that they needed to landlock Ukraine, take over the Black Sea, take over Odessa, and then build the land bridge to and then go there. Part of the reason why I think, just to it, that the threat of a Ru- intimate Russian invasion of Moldova, which has been talked about a lot over the course of the past several months, is quite overestimated because the Black Sea fleet is weakened and they don't have Black Sea control. So the Russians uh, intervened on several axes of advance, but they did not uh, concentrate their forces. And even some Russian academics and analysts who I've spoken to since will be willing to admit that that was a mistake. And uh, they took 170,000 to 200,000 forces, they split them on, with attacks on, on Donetsk, on Kharkiv, on uh, Karzan, on Zaporizhia, and on Kiev. And uh, it was just simply was not, not enough in the face of an entirely and completely mobilized Ukrainian army and Ukrainian society. So obviously they intervened with that insufficient manpower, and they also intervened with insufficient logistics they uh, were preparing for a two- to three-day victory. So they didn't supply food and cold-weather gear beyond two or three days. And that led to needless losses of lives and needless uh, uh, injuries and casualties that took uh, uh, soldiers off the battlefield. They also did not really respond in a very uh, proactive way to uh, Ukraine's uh, intelligence capabilities. Everything from the introduction of Starlink to consult- consultations with the uh, the, the American officials have been targeting uh, Russian generals and Russian military commanders. The the vertical, rigid command structure inside Russia, which uh, does not allow, except for some groups like the Wagner Group and some paratroopers, the vast majority of the Russian military follows a hierarchy and follows orders and doesn't really think about the situation on the ground because the commanders who are making those decisions are sometimes thousands of miles away. So this uh, the, the, that rigid command structure prevented them from being uh, able to respond to Ukraine's stronger-than-expected uh resistance, and uh, to lack of uh, large-scale collaboration with the Russians. And that led to losses of many elite forces for, for no reason, and for, and created a, a debacle for them. So I think that by the summer, Russia was uh, strategically defeated. Their main goal of uh, achieving a regime change in Kiev and replacing Zelensky with a pro-Russian alternative, like Medvedchuk or Vanikovich or Saria, was gone with the uh, withdrawal from Kiev. And uh, they they weren't even able to encircle the city, let alone launch in a major urban battle. They had uh, managed to take over uh, K- Kurzon and, uh, and Zaporizhia, but Zaporizhia and Melitopol was and still remains relatively under defended. And Kurzon, the uh, the Russian forces were incredibly vulnerable to Ukraine just striking bridges. And then they had to start using pontoon ferries to resupply. And they realized they couldn't. And twenty thousand troops were stuck, and they had to they had to withdraw. So they had very fragile occupations where they did manage to occupy, and they they had lost the Moscow West, so the Black Sea Fleet and Crimea were now under threat from a logistics uh, standpoint, and uh, they did manage to gain Luhansk, but they gained it at such an extraordinary cost in terms of ammunition and losses of life that they need to launch a mobilization of the Russian uh, society and, to a lesser extent, the economy to make up for that and uh, start relying much more on prisoners and Wagner and other forces to make up for the. Depletion of the Russian military. So that's why I think it probably was a right assessment that the Russians were strategically defeated by the summer. They suffered heavy losses of lives. They had lost their core objective, which was a regime change in Kiev. And they were in a situation where it was very hard for them to gain territory, but it was very quite easy for them to lose it.
1: And what do you make? I mean, this is uh, these are developments since since you finished the book. But what do you make of the the Russian offensive that was meant to be in the spring but turned out to to have started in January? Do do, do you get the sense that um, that it's pretty much at its end, and that the the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive will begin uh, pretty soon? And where, and what direction would you expect that to take?
0: So I think the Russian uh, spring offensive, as as it was supposed to be in, in the winter, has has ended uh, effectively. And uh, it's ended very, very disappointingly. They've only took over 70 square kilometers of Ukrainian territory this past month. That's 0.01% of Ukrainian territory. So And uh, given the uh, extensive losses of lives, that's almost like 500 person people probably per square kilometer. Mm-hmm. So it's not very, very... Uh, the strong record of success. The only success, partial success they can claim right now is the takeover of Solidar, right, and some of the uh, salt and gypsum mining tunnels that, that infrastructure tunnels that were around it, and uh, even Bakhmut, they only control the eastern part of the city, and they're still, they're moving towards a near-fire control, a near encirclement, but not quite being able to complete that that circle because there's still a sizable Ukrainian resistance there. And uh, many of the prisoners and many of the Wagner Group forces that were sent to the battlefields were slaughtered. So I think that Institute of Study of War and other military analysts are correct when they say that the offensive is nearing or is already at the culmination. And the culmination of the spring offensive might uh, not even see the Russians take over and win backward. So that's a major disappointment from the Russian uh, point of view, but not entirely surprising because Russia... Has uh, a shortage of precision missiles, which is and when it does have precision missiles, it uses them for relatively uh, irrelevant uh, beca- initiatives, like you know striking power grids that can easily be repaired or striking at uh, at civilian infrastructure, which the West can uh, can resupply and provide. And uh, it seems as if Russia is using precision missiles more to appease war hawks at home, more to appease the Pregosians and the Kadyrov's and the people who think the war should be fought more effectively, and that. And, and that Putin is uh, mismanaging this war, and the defense ministry is managing this war, rather than actually doing uh, actions that are of a hard military purpose. So Russia squandered whatever it had in terms of precision weaponry and relied extensively on quantity over quality. And ultimately, it didn't uh, achieve what it wanted in in Bakhmut or, or elsewhere on the offensive lines. They tried to take over in K- Kupiansk. The Ukrainians are spooked into a partial uh, withdrawal of, of civilians there but that was just a a bluff in the end. They weren't able to make any progress. The Russians talk about trying to launch an offensive on Zaporizhia City in April, but they made numerous attacks on the Zaporizhia direction over the past couple of months, which produced no results. So I think that we're looking at a very, very uh, difficult situation for the Russians in terms of seeing where they can gain territory going forward. For the Ukrainians, the situation is not wholly positive, but it's also much more optimistic than what we can see coming from the Russian side. Obviously, there was a large loss of life in Bakhmut. We're looking at 20 to 30,000 Russians uh, being lost. NATO estimates say that there were five to one Russians to Ukrainians, but many of those Ukrainians who were lost were from the territorial defense forces, and they were forces who have combat experience. And uh, that is a, a blow to the Ukrainians as they regroup, and it may have delayed the start of the counteroffensive from March now on into later in the spring because they need some more time to regroup. And also there's been some frustrations inside Ukraine about the West's unwillingness to supply fighter jets, even though Poland now has finally broken that, that taboo. And also the slow pace of some of the arrival of the artillery. I mean, the Leopard tanks have been coming in and streaming in, but the U.S. hasn't parted with Abrams tanks, in spite of giving so much military aid. So the Ukrainians are probably going to wait to recover some of these manpower losses, make a decision on whether to tactically retreat from Bakhmut and concentrate forces, or keep a defensive foothold in, in Bakhmut to keep the Russians distracted, and then go on the offensive. I suspect that, given the symbolism and the resonance of the city, and how much Zelensky has described it as a fortress and as a way of defending Donbass, that they'll keep a presence in Don, in, in Bakhmut and then redirect more of their forces on the offensive. So I think that they they're not going to tactically withdraw and redirect. They're going to keep a small contingent and then and then move. But uh, the Ukrainians are going to try to launch a multi-axis counteroffensive. They were able to do it in Kharkiv and Kherson uh, and Liman, uh back in the fall. They're going to try to do something similar to that again. The problem is it's going to be a lot slower. That's the thing, because the Russians have a lot more manpower now, and they fortified these regions a lot more. And uh, there's still some gaps in terms of the technology that they that the Ukrainians need to have in order to be able to launch a quick victory and a quick success in terms of the offensive lines that we're probably looking at: it's federal Crimea, on Luhansk, because it's probable they've already been launching offensives in that direction. But Luhansk is heavily mined, heavily fortified. It's a slow-moving campaign. We might see the Ukrainians try to surprise the Russians by launching an offensive in Donetsk, right in parallel to where the Russians were, were moving forward. So the Russians were attacking when They took Liman. They might try to do something similar. That also will be very difficult because of how entrenched the, the Russians have been there. So the Donbass axes are viable but hard to achieve. The most realistic path to success, I think, still runs through uh, Zaporizhia. Like if they have have control of 60% of the oblast, but then cutting through and taking over Melitopol and derailing and disrupting Russian supply lines and combining that with attacks on Crimea and on some ammunition and logistical labs right inside Russia, like Belgorod and Bryansk. That could be the most viable offensive axis. So those will probably be the main priorities. And they may also try to continue their strategy of trying to force a Russian retreat from the rest of Kherson. Probably not. They're not going to launch a frontal assault there, but they're going to continue to attack infrastructure, isolate those forces, and hope for a Russian withdrawal. So that would probably be the plan going forward. Zaporizhia looks like the best. They'll try and do best, but it'll be slow-moving and and, and hard to recapture those territories. And they'll hope to see if they can scatter the Russians enough that the Russians redeploy from Kherson to defend more uh, vital territory.
1: I mean... What do you think? The honestly are the Ukrainian war aims. I mean, presumably, the the far eastern parts of uh, of the Donbass and Crimea. Well, the, the far eastern areas of the Donbass are really going to be pretty much wasteland now in terms of recapture. And Crimea is is there, the signals coming from Ukraine imply that that is something that they could allow to be negotiated. Is that do you think do you think do you think the ultimate uh, aim is to restore the February twenty twenty two lines or is it to go beyond that? Well, I think it's definitely to go beyond that. And I think that you know
0: yes, there's some isolated comments uh, about Crimea being negotiable. Even Zelensky and Akramania during the symbol talks in March of last year were broaching that idea that you know we can talk about Crimea status for about ten or fifteen years. Uh, And then we can deal with the rest. The West has said, if Ukraine wants to go into Crimea, that's a decision that they will make. We will will think about supporting them. But there's been, in general, there's been some uh, vacillations within NATO about whether to encourage Ukraine to go in that direction because of the nuclear weapons risk. But absolutely, I think the Ukrainians are extremely united right now on trying to recapture as much of their territory as possible. And they see historic opportunity with the weakness of the Russian military and the depletion of Russia's. Uh, elite corps, and also war material. And they fear that if they wait and if the conflict freezes, Russia will be able to uh, revise its military doctrine, expand its army once again, start uh, uh, rebuilding its uh, equipment, and then launching another attack and another war like this in the future. So obviously that's something that the Ukrainians want to avoid at all costs. That's why I think they're going to continue fighting, even if it does lead to heavy losses of life in the short term. And the good news is for the Ukrainians that the NATO and the European Union and the United States, by and large, are all united around this. So I think that the Ukrainians are going to definitely want to go past the March to February 2022 line. So take over Kherson, take over Zaporizhia. They'll want to try to see as far as they can into into Donbass. And then when it comes to Crimea, they may have to make a decision because Crimea is heavily fortified. There's a lot of uh, Russians who have resettled there who might not uh, who might resist. Actually, there's actually capacity for resistance, and uh, there is a. Uh, whether the risk of you no know, nuclear weapons use. So I think Ukraine at that point would consult with their Western partners on how to proceed and what the risks are. But I think until we get to Crimea, I think the Ukrainians are going to try to liberate every other part of their territory and continue the war uh, as long as they have manpower and they have Western support.
1: Yes, because uh, apart from not regaining some of those lands, I mean, you could argue that Ukraine has achieved extraordinary uh, success in its war aims in terms of, you know, they are now officially a candidate for European Union membership. They, if they don't end up as a NATO member, they're essentially going to be a sort of shadow NATO member. They're going to be the most powerful military in Europe, and they are they are going to be a major European country. Do do you think that is, for at least for the sort of political class, that would be a trade off worth making, even if that meant that parts of the, the territorial integrity that they had uh, before twenty fourteen no longer apply.
0: The problem is that from an elite perspective, there's so much fervor for the recapture of territory in Ukraine that any kind of concession of that nature would be seen as a a betrayal and it would probably destroy Zelensky's image. We look at some of the opinion surveys coming out of Ukraine. Up to 93% of Ukrainians would continue fighting even if the Russians start using nuclear weapons. This is an extraordinary degree of patriotism and unity Probably like in Europe, but we, which we haven't seen in, uh, in, in the, in the century. So it's an extraordinary uh, display of unity. And I think that uh, giving up territory would ultimately be politically detrimental for any of the elites in Kiev. And they would, be, they would struggle to frame the things that you said, which are rightful, legitimate successes and successes to their own population. And keep in mind that if the war ends, there's going to be an election in Ukraine. And regardless of what's happening, I think there will be an election in Ukraine next year. And uh, that's uh, a factor that we have to consider in terms of Zelensky's moves going forward, that uh, he's not going to want to be seen as surrendering uh, to any kind of territory, any kind of movements towards Russia. And uh, also, but for the Russian side standpoint, these other factors that you just mentioned add to the salt to the wound, right? If the Russians could not occupy Ukraine, the idea was that they they would try to destroy it. They've tried to destroy its economic potentials, long-term ability to be a democracy, and its long-term ability to integrate or be appealing at all to the West. It's true that we've seen a 40% decline in GDP. We've seen uh, some serious economic problems, so the debt default was uh, abated by Western assistance. But we've also seen uh, a lot of uh, long-term promise for Ukraine to enter the European Union eventually, and integrate much more closely with the West. So Putin not only failed to occupy Ukraine, he also failed in the long term, I think, to destroy it.
1: Well, I mean, there we are discussing what the Ukrainians could accept. What, what possible outcome, what feasible outcome could there be for Russia that that would not be an abject failure? Is, is there any way that this can be dressed up as uh, any kind of victory?
0: Well, I think that, you know, uh, with regards to the Russians, I think that... Uh, they have already failed in their core objective, which is to change the regime in Kiev. And they already have put themselves into a box. So I was speaking to the former Ukrainian defense minister, Andriy Zgorodnik, and he told me in uh, September of 2022, the biggest mistake that Russia could make is annexing Ukrainian territory through referenda, because that would put Putin in a box. And if Russia does not defend that territory, Putin will be seen as not defending his own people from an act of aggression of another, of another state. And they annexed regions that they didn't even have control over. They annexed uh, Kurzan when they lost the city. They annexed uh, Donetsk when they don't have Laman, Mans, Slovians, or Kramatorsk. They annexed uh, Zaporizhia when they don't even have the capital. So they've annexed already much more territory than they already actually have in the, in the, occupied, in the occupied regions. And uh, they have a quandary now as to how they can explain that to their own population, why they're giving up territory that they claim to have annexed to the Ukrainians. Of course, there's the cop-out response, which is that we haven't fully demarc- demarcated the boundaries of, of these occupied regions and we'll decide on them later on. But it's very clear that Donbass, meant Donbass, it meant the whole of Donetsk and Luhansk. Kurzan's operation did not feature so much in the propaganda before that maybe something can be worked out there. But they failed to even liberate the Donbass, as they say. That would be a major disappointment uh, domestically that even the propagandists would find hard to spin, and we're seeing that some concerns and some realizations about Russian defeat even being seeping into the state media discourse. We saw commentators like Maxim Yuzin talking about how uh, why are we the only country maybe in, in history, modern history, that's the next territory that we don't have, and uh, we're never really going to be able to take over that operation. We just simply don't know, and uh, there's. The, you know, there's a lot of discussions about how you know NATO is, has ganged up on Russia, and that this is a David versus Goliath fight where Russia is a small country fighting against the NATO bloc, and that's why we're we're struggling. So the Russians are trying to, uh, and, and propagandists are trying to rationalize the these setbacks and trying to prime the public for a potential defeat. But I don't think that's going to work very
1: well. Well. I mean, even diplomatically abroad, it's not going well. I mean, your later chapters focus on Putin's attempt to rescue himself by appealing to China in particular, but also allies in the global south. That doesn't seem to have gone too well. Why not?
0: Well, I think that basically uh, what we're looking at with regards to the global south and the uh, allies, I think that Russia has managed to polarize international order, and it worked on polarizing international order long before this current conflict. It was trying to make sure that if they did have a confrontation with the West, which many people in Russia, like I would think hardliners like Sergei Glazia, for example, for a Putin economic uh, advisor, felt was inevitable. If they did have, like, you know, those uh, the, the sanctions from the West escalating, regardless of what they did internationally, they wanted to make sure the non-West wouldn't join them and wouldn't uh, cultivate uh, anti-Russian sentiments. So they strengthened their partnership with China, losing energy as an opening. They uh, maintained and developed their relationship with India, Putin and Modi, uh, developing close relations and also armed supplies, pledges like the S-400s. They deepened their engagement with the Arab League, ASEAN, African Union, many regional institutions, and also the countries within them. They militarily intervened in Syria. They established footprints across Africa, Libya, Central African Republic, Mali, from a security side. And they also went to the Western Hemisphere and tried to establish uh, stronger partnerships using BRICS as an opening with Brazil and uh, also Argentina, Mexico, and other countries. And that has largely helped. I mean, the 141 countries who condemned Russia a year ago is now 140 countries in most resolutions. So one year into the war, very few countries that condemned Russia have changed their mind and seen Russia more favorably, but very few countries that won't condemn Russia are moving on to the West and the Ukrainian side. So Russia has succeeded in polarizing the international community to some extent and has prevented the collective non-West, for the most part, from imposing sanctions on it. But that's only uh, part of the story, and that's only part of the victory. The problem is, China's investments in Russia have been declining since 2015 and ground to a near halt in the Belt and Road during the first half of 2022. There's some movement on the infrastructure side and some movement on the energy side, but there isn't really much in terms of investment. And uh, Russian capital and Russian uh, elites are, are, are fleeing to places like Dubai. But the Emiratis sovereign wealth fund are not uh, reciprocally pumping the same kind of investment into Russia. So right now, it's a question of countries not punishing Russia, not sanctioning Russia, taking advantage of cheap raw materials and eventually tactically lucrative business deals with Russia, but not really propping up the Russian economy or helping its long-term development. And that's the problem they have in the global south. They have short-term fixes, but very few long-term solutions coming from their non-Western partners – And also, due to Russia's culture of uh, paranoia about sharing any kind of military technology, including hypersonics, even with countries that are seen to be friendly, like China, and uh, the unwillingness of countries, with the exception of Belarus and Iran and maybe North Korea, to get directly involved in this war uh, has meant that military assistance and manufacturing uh, potential has not arrived in Russia on a large scale. We may have seen some odd semiconductors go through Turkey from China, or we might see some uniforms entering uh, from China, but no lethal assistance, and no lethal assistance from anywhere else aside from the Belarusians, Iranians, and even debatably the North Koreans. The Ukrainians say it didn't happen, the Americans did.
1: Well, I think that's a good place to close. So uh, to finish, as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to recommend two, one from their field and one personal choice. So Sam, what have you chosen?
0: So I think that from my field, one of the books that was fascinating for me and helped also encourage my thinking on the the subject – of uh, basically the, the, this was Weak Strongman by uh, Timothy Fry. And that really goes to the, the that's an interesting book because it speaks to the weaknesses that Putin was facing internally and some of the constraints uh, on his uh, regime security uh, in the longer term that weren't there. And it really deals with, you know, the calculation that, you know, even though it looks like an increasingly authoritarian and totalitarian state, it's also an increasingly uh, paranoid one, an increasingly uh, insecure one. Sometimes those insecurities are not borne out by actual rational threat assessments. So we're seeing irrational threat assessments, fears about long-term sustainability, fears about long-term stability, kind of motivate Putin's uh, unpredictable conduct. And now we're seeing with this Ukraine war, a good example of that. So Weak Strongman by Kermit Timothy Fry is an excellent book uh, that provides context for how we got here. So I think that's an interesting one. Another book that was interesting that also came out uh, through Hearst that I was just reading was uh, How to Fight a War by uh, Mike Martin. That's another interesting one. It really deals with a lot of the uh, problems with regards to the communications between politicians and generals, as well as uh, basically dealing with the uh, information gaps and uh, how to uh, basically uh, fight an interstate war more, more correctly than the, what we've been seeing a, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So if you're looking from a military perspective, just about some of the problems that uh, are happening between military and politics, not just in Russia, but obviously further fields across the world. I think it's an interesting uh, book to understand how
1: militaries function in a comparative and a contextual basis today. Great. Well, they're both new to the, uh, to the tip list. So uh, thank you. Today, I've been talking to Samuel Romani about Putin's war on Ukraine, published in April by Hearst. Sam, thanks again for coming on. Uh, thank you very much. It's great to be here.